Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Today, we're interviewing Carl Dakin, who is an expert in entrepreneurship and small business capital financing. Carl, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys, for inviting me to um, appear in this uh, virtual world tonight. So uh, happy to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your past, your interest, and what it is that brings you to work on the problems that you're working on today? Sure. Um, I basically uh, started off my career as an attorney and uh, working uh, out of the gate with a lot of high-tech companies because I seem to have a knack for understanding some of the nuances of how a technology might work and then the implications that might arise from that from a legal standpoint. And after 20 years of uh, acting primarily as an advisor, consultant, uh, I I put on or turned my hat around, so to speak, and I parked through the back seat and said, I want to drive some of these projects. I want to move technologies to market, which I think are going to make the world a better place, maybe do some greater good. And so I'm now 22 years uh, in the uh, technology management strategy and innovation place. And along the way, I, I've continuously been the person, everybody says, well, where are we going to get the funding for that? So I, I've become a student and, and I guess a, a sensei on where do you go for the money? Uh, why is it there? Why does somebody care? And uh, I've, I've developed my own approaches and I have uh, a better improving success rate in matching people with people who are motivated to give up their resources to make anything new under the sun uh, go to market. Outstanding. So what, what have you got on, the, on your plate these days? Well, right now I'm splitting my time as I usually do over too many projects and the the word overextended in my name in the dictionary goes side by side. Uh, But I'm working on four primary areas. Uh, One is I'm helping bring to market an old technology in a repurposed format to address COVID and and help businesses reopen. Uh, That's a disinfection technology. Uh, at the same time, uh, we took some uh, funding models I've been working on for the last couple of years to uh, address the need for workforce housing, uh, affordable quality housing for people in lower incomes. And then uh, I have been working continuously on a variety of educational programs for entrepreneurship and capital formation, uh, which we're hoping to kick off here soon. And uh, last, not least, in my major projects, uh, I'm now helping uh, raise money for uh, what will become a, a new professional rugby team here in Colorado. All right. So given that you've got all this experience with small businesses, capital formation and related topics in economic development, could you speak a little bit about what the fallout has been with respect to COVID-19 and, and the businesses that are shutting as a result of it? Sure. Um, Having been old enough now to have experienced a number of downturns in our economy through my career, 
Uh, once I became aware of the extent of the pandemic, I immediately foresaw all the economic consequences that would occur from this disaster. This is similar to a hurricane hitting Puerto Rico, uh, where you, you have an immediate damage, you have immediate loss of life, damaged property, but the reverb or cascade effect can go on for years, even decades. And, and it was real clear that when they started talking about telling businesses to shut down lockdown, that it was gonna cause an immediate wave of business failures because a lot of businesses, particularly small businesses, live on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, they're, they're worried about making the payroll next week. And when you strip out all that income, it, it takes time to replace or substitute that income. And when there was no substitution and the time when you can go you know, back into your business uh, kept being delayed or changed on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis, uh, you knew it was gonna cause a lot of business failure. And uh, then uh, once you know that this many businesses are being impacted, you see a cascade effect where the businesses who sell to those businesses are going to fail. That takes a while. And then once those businesses fail, the ones who sell to those businesses fail. So automatically you're looking at anywhere from nine months to two years before you probably will hit bottom. So we may not even see the, the bottom of this economic downturn until uh, late this year, mid next year. And, and then we're, even though we've got offsetting gains and growth in other areas, uh, you'll see everybody who's lost all their savings, people who can't do things they would have done before. Uh, and as I was explaining to someone this morning, the, nut, the mortality rate from the economic downturn will ultimately become greater than the actual deaths from COVID. That you'll have people who didn't get that healthcare inspection. You've got the ones who, committed suicide, you'll have people who are living at a lower quality of life, maybe can't afford their fuel oil this winter or something along that line. And, and it's all there. It's, it, you see this in every major disaster that there are these consequences that, that occur for a long, long time after the initial impact. And so, we're not through the initial impact yet. So what would you, what would you guess as a percentage of business failure uh, from COVID? Right now, um, depends on who you're talking to and which industry, because we have um, we have a very weird system that the government employed here, and, uh, and I'm blaming a lot of people at the federal level for doing this poorly. I, I acknowledge that at the outset, they didn't know what they were reacting to, but they kind of like said, this is the way we're gonna do it, and we won't change even if we're wrong afterwards, or we could have learned from what we should have learned. Uh, but the, in certain industries like the restaurant industry, they're talking 60 to 80% failure of restaurants uh, that are gone and will never return. Uh, in uh, certain venues, particularly public entertainment venues, some of them are still locked down and can't open at all. I have no idea how they could return unless they're, they're sitting on an unlimited amount of money, which I don't know anybody like that. Um, uh, so it varies by industry to industry. We had a lot of them were labeled essential businesses for reasons that were not well explained. Uh, we had a lot of them that were determined uh, not essential, like a bar where you would go down to get your drink. So cheers would have closed as a consequence of these lockdowns uh, if uh, it had been around uh, at that time. Uh, because uh, they have determined that bars are not essential. And in fact, almost under any level of uh, threat, they have to remain closed as a as a bar. So uh, there's it varies on your industry. 
uh, that you're seeing all these, these businesses close. And then the ones, as I said, we still will take time to determine who's been closed too long, who's selling to those businesses and who's selling to those businesses who sell to those businesses. So it's not, it's not terribly surprising that businesses in the inter- entertainment industry have been hit very hard by this. Are there any industries that have been hit very hard that are somewhat surprising to you that you didn't expect uh, to, to have been shuttered as a result of the lockdowns of the virus? Well, one of the ones I have an interest in is indoor ag and, and growing stuff in greenhouses. And, and when you shut down the restaurant, uh, everybody goes, yeah, I get that. But what were the restaurants selling? Well, a lot of them were selling salads. And, and so all these greenhouses that sprung up over the last several years selling lettuces and greens and so forth to the restaurant industry, uh, they basically had no one to sell it to. And there is no secondary market. There's nowhere to go with that. You have to grow it or lose it. And, and after a while, it didn't even make any sense to grow it. Uh, so it, it's going to take a while sometimes to see just where the dominoes start stop falling because um, uh, some of this seems obvious to me because I very well understand supply chains for multiple industries. But to the average person, they're going, why did that business close? And if you then investigate it, you'll go, oh, here's the causation and the effect that took place. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the economist Frederick Bastiat, but he's got that famous line about looking at the seen and the unseen. So anytime you've got a government policy, there are all these things that are manifest and that you can look at, but you also have to trace the more subtle chains of causation, the businesses that go out of business as a result of the restaurants being shut down, for example. Yeah, they refer to them as unintended consequences because any change has both a good and a bad part. And, and the really good changes, there's a vast amount of greater benefit than there is downside. But right now, as an example, the Biden administration just put a freeze on oil and gas, and they're trying to close the, the pipeline uh, across the border from Canada. And regardless of which side of the fence you stand on that particular issue, people are going to lose jobs. And in certain communities, as we've seen over the last five years, as they're shutting down all the coal plants uh, and the coal-powered plants, uh, then you're putting people out of work. And a lot of times these are in communities, there is no secondary industry. That was the only job in town. Uh, here in Colorado, uh, on the west side of the state, uh, they shut down the power plant in Nucla, and it represented about 63% of the tax base for the county and over 70 to 80% of the direct and indirect jobs in that area, okay? And you go, what are you gonna do to replace that? Yeah, nothing. No yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. Nothing quite comes to mind when you shut down the primary employer like that. Um, yeah, there's so many uh, tangential effects of this that uh, it's hard to trace uh, the cause and effect of all of these things. Now, you're you're working with a company now to uh, provide uh, called Sterosafe that's trying to clean up the air in restaurants and bars. Uh, can you fill us in a little bit on that? Yeah, it, uh, as it turned out, I had a client who had decided to do a career change because of COVID and wanted to get into doing everything she could do to halt or prevent the spread of, of COVID as a disease. And, and she started looking around for different technologies that might aid in doing that. And she came across this uh, technology that had been used for over 20 years in food processing. 
but its primary focus was to treat surfaces over a continuous period of time. And the company never really looked at themselves as being an air disinfection technology. They were just a surface food processing technology. And, and suddenly they realized that this could be applied in public venues to make any particular room or building safe. This technology uh, basically creates a, a burst of charged particles, electrons and ions and all this kind of stuff and saturates the room with these to the point where anytime a pathogen is encounters one of these charged particles, it just kills it automatically, quickly, continuously. And you can make a room or a building now safer than you would be by anything that's been proposed by the CDC or by the Colorado Department of Health or any of the other states that are out there. And uh, we implemented this technology in a bar uh, down on May, uh, Broadway here in Denver and in Inglewood, uh, Mick Mullins Irish Bar. And uh, we started off uh, taking air samples and surface samples before we turned on the machine. And we took some from outside, which I'll come back to in a moment, as a control group where it wouldn't be impacted by the equipment. And over the course of a week, it knocked out over 92% of all the pathogens that were in the air and over 70% that were on the surfaces. And over the four week trial period, we got up to 96% in the air and 95% on surfaces. And this is not a clean room by its definition, but when you compare this to anything else that's out there, you, you say, well, I wanna be in this room. This is a place where the chance of catching COVID is so small because I have this continuous pathogen elimination taking place that I want to be here instead of somewhere else. And, and yet, under the health rules, it doesn't matter. They don't care how safe this particular room is. All bars are considered equal, uh, whether it's the pit where everybody is you know, still smoking illegally inside or you know, it hasn't been cleaned in 50 decades. Uh, but this place is, you, you walk into it and you go, am I in a hospital? You can smell the, the cleanliness of the air and, and you're feeling safe for the first time. I mean, when I was in there, I, the first time I was like, it was the first time since COVID started where I wasn't worried about catching COVID. And, and, and the, the mental stress relief was not obvious, but it, it, it really gave me a, a kind of an upbeat feel. And, and so uh, now uh, what we're trying to do is a whole bunch of demonstrations. It's kind of a nose arc. I'd like to do one in a daycare, a jail, a school, a gymnasium, wherever we can do one to show people that this works. Now, technically, they're all rooms and they're all buildings, so it doesn't really matter but everybody wants to see it used in their environment. So we're right now doing outreach across the country uh, to all kinds of different public venues saying, if you want to do a demo, call us. We'll put the equipment in, run it for a week. We'll do all the lab tests, show you how clean the room got. And then it's up to you. If you want to stay with this or you don't, uh, it's your call. Um, at the same time, we've started an advocacy program uh, pointed to the Colorado Department of Health where we've to this point, we've had no success. And so we turned our attention to the upcoming Colorado legislative session that starts in a few weeks. And we're asking legislators, we want you to recognize that there's two ways to be safe, not mask and social distancing, but also killing pathogens in a room in a scientifically measured and third-party validated process. 
And, and when you compare the two, the one reminds me of burning the witches in Salem. It's like there's a plague on the town. Let's take those people and burn them. And somehow that's supposed to make a difference. When you compare it with the fact that we have decades old technology, well-proven, uh, all validated, we can measure everything. Why wouldn't we use this new system? And, and, and this has all been used in food processing. It's been reviewed by EPA, OSHA, uh, all the federal agencies except FDA and CDC. And even the CDC has looked at this technology as long as two, ago as 2008 and set it on the shelf and did nothing with it. So you know, the more I've learned about this, the more I keep asking the question, when COVID started, why did they do the warp speed program with the vaccine which was an unknown, uncertain outcome and do nothing with indoor air quality using existing technologies and companies that were already in place. And, and I don't have a good answer for that yet. Yeah, can you explain a little bit more about how the technology works? Is it a spray, is it a light, is, what is it? Yeah, no, there are several different types of technologies that are out there that are called disinfectants. Uh, a lot of them are surface oriented. There are sprays or fogs where you're taking a wet chemical and you're, you're putting it on the surface. And then when it contacts a pathogen on the surface, it kills it. Uh, what we're doing here is we're taking an electrode. Uh, we're charging the electrode up till it over energizes. And at that time, it creates what's called a cold plasma. This is a cloud of electrons, different types of electrical species that fill the air. They're oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen variations and the air is saturated with these. You can't see them, but the closest equivalent is if you walked across the room you're in right now and reached for a door handle, there's a high chance you're gonna have an electrical static charge that's coming out of your finger to that door handle. And that can be 5,000 volts of power that you're zapping the door handle with. Well, this is the same equivalent. When you see one of these charged particles touch a pathogen in the air, that power translates over to it and it eliminates it. It breaks down the RNA of a virus or a DNA of a bacteria. It kills all the pathogens in the air. It isn't limited just to viruses. And at that point, the room is clean, the virus is dead, and you don't have to worry about catching it anymore. Is it safe for humans? Pardon? Is it safe for people? Oh, so this has been used in uh, live production facilities uh, it passes the two uh, threshold tests that have been set by OSHA and the EPA for uh, levels of ozone and hydrogen peroxide, and it's below that threshold. Those are the two primary things that they measure for, and people can work in this environment continuously 24 by 7, and it meets all the health and safety standards that have been set for this type of device. So it doesn't change oxygen levels or anything. What what does a device look like? Is it um, uh, like an appliance or something? It, it looks a lot like a video projector. Um, essentially, you've got air coming in the back. Uh, it goes through the device. It goes over this, this basically electrode. Uh, where all these particles are put into the air and then it blows that out into the room. So the particles all, all have different lifespans ranging from a few seconds to up to 20 minutes, but that allows the whole room to be filled with these in a continuous fashion. So it's always killing pathogens all, all the time. So it's something you put in the room and it's just on 24 hours a day then? Yeah, you, you run it continuously. Uh, you can have one that stands alone portable in a room, 
You can embed it into your HVAC system so that as the air comes out of your primary duct, it goes through a bypass, all these electrical particles are put into the air, and then it blows it throughout your entire building. If you are spraying all these electrical particles everywhere, is there any chance that it could damage electronics? We've not seen anything like that. It, it, apparently that at the level of a piece of electrons, uh, if I were doing a microchip production facility, I might not want to have this in the room, uh, but anything larger than that. Now, the, the amount of uh, power that's taking place for something at the atomic level to kill a pathogen is is far, far lower than, than what we would experience with electrostatic shock walking across the room. What's, what's the price point of it? I'm partly, I'm what's, sorry, what's, what's the price point of this device? Uh, the devices right now range from $4,500 to $20,000. Uh, they have three different model levels, which depend upon the complexity of your airflow and the volume of air that you're trying to process. And then it depends upon how big your building is. So we do a cubic measurement of the room or building. We look at how the air flows through the building. If you have an HVAC system uh, that you're using, and from there we come up with a price bid that fits that specific place to make sure that we're covering every nook and cranny in the room. This sounds like a very promising approach to disinfecting a space. I'm just curious as to why it hasn't seen wider adoption. I ask myself that a lot. <laughs> the um, There are a number of technologies that are out there that uh, we have seen that help, but are not necessarily as effective as the particular technology I'm working with. But I, I think they all should be considered from uh, a regulatory standpoint. Uh, part of what you see is some of these only work as you recycle the air through an HVAC system, meaning that you have to do an air exchange uh, in order to treat the air. And when you're dealing with COVID, when a person can be infected between when uh, you uh, exhale and Tom inhales, uh, you need something that's very quick that's going to happen between those two points in time. If you have to wait for it to go through an air exchange in an HVAC system, which may take 15 minutes or longer uh, and may not do the entire room, uh, then it's quite possible that you're still going to transmit COVID from one person to another. So not all these technologies uh, are as good as you want them to be, but they can all help. Okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your work in capital financing for small businesses. I wonder if over the decades in which you've you've helped people raise money, if you've noticed anything about what makes a business attractive for people who have resources and are looking to invest them somewhere. Actually, uh, this goes to the heart of some of the educational programs I'm working on in teaching people how to raise money. Uh, we haven't, uh, I'll say, unfortunately, we've developed a lot of myths around how money should be raised. And Shark Tank uh, uh, epitomizes how that's wrong. Uh, the <laughs> assumption is that every business out there who needs money can go to anybody who has money and ask for money, and that small business is entitled to get money without regard to the potential probability of success, without regard to the price of money, uh, without regard to anything that's the real, real world. 
And, and so we, every t- we train all our kids in college to stand on a podium and do a tap dance and sing the praises of their opportunity, whether they have any experience, any chance of success or, or, the, or any number of failure points. And, and then they think that somebody in the room is going to jump up and go, I want to write you a check, even though they have no relationship with that person and there's been no chance to do due diligence on the opportunity. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the things that people want to invest in are all very obvious and straightforward. They want something that's already done, already proven, no risk, a virtual certainty you're going to get your money back, and they would like to get as much money back as possible. Um, so uh, it, it, you're going like, okay, then instead of a, an idea that has never been tested, I find a product like uh, Vortex, which won the um, Colorado Lending Source Business of the Year today, I believe it was. They've been in business for five years. They have products, they're doing sales, they're expanding every year. Uh, they have a management team, they've overcome all the obstacles of getting a startup. Which one would I rather invest in? Well, I want to invest in a proven company with a proven management team with a proven market because that makes sense. Um, when I come to somebody, <laughs> like with this new disinfection technology, and they go, well, why is it in the market? I go, because they were focused over here, and now we have to get them focused over here. And they spoke French, and now I need to get them to speak Spanish. And oh, by the way, all their demonstrations don't really apply to the problem because they're measuring surfaces over days instead of air over seconds. And, And so we're like doing a complete makeover on the business line, even though the product has not changed 1%, it's just a matter of saying, oh, it also does this, but I don't have anything to back that up. So we're in a mad scramble to create demonstrations and case studies to, to show how it works in this new application. Do you think that the reason there are so many myths around raising money is primarily because we're sort of in love with this idea of Facebook or some brand new technology that kind of storms the world and makes billions of dollars for a lot of people? Are we just sort of in love with that vision of an entrepreneur? We, we absolutely are. Uh, the lone wolf entrepreneur is an iconic figure uh, that everybody goes, oh, they overcame all these odds, even though ignoring that they may have created most of the problems that they faced. <laughs> and they made a bunch of money. And, and it's similar to people winning the lottery uh, everybody wants to hold the winning lottery ticket and everybody would love to be the entrepreneur that became the next head of, of Google or of Facebook or, or something of that nature uh, without understanding everything that goes along the path. Uh, and they just, you know, it's like, I want a quick fix. I want great, um, um, re- grat- uh, what is it? Instant uh, gratification. gratification. Thank you. <laughs> Instant gratification. We're, we're all designed that way. It's a natural part of human beings. The difference between a successful entrepreneur and a wannabe entrepreneur is an understanding that it's not going to work right the first time. You're going to have to hang in there longer than you want to. You've got to want this to happen badly enough that you'll put up with all the obstacles and all the challenges that are naturally going to occur and, and at, at the end of the day, you may still need a bit of luck to get it over the finish line. Um, the wannabe entrepreneurs is, is like, well, I want to be on TV. I want to uh, be on the front cover of a magazine. I want to be interviewed. You see a lot of them going around to 
the different pitch competitions, the same business goes to 10 pitch competitions. And you're like, well, weren't you successful the first time? Why do you need to go to another one? Uh, <laughs> and, and it's more about themselves. It becomes more of a um, all about me a scenario. And it's a terrible value um, proposition for a person where they care more about how they look than about what they're achieving with their product or service. And ultimately that will interfere with their likelihood of success. So with your, the startups that you work with, what's the primary source of money that uh, you, you direct people to that you work with? Um, well, and, and this is one of the myths, Tom, that I'm going to blow up right here <laughs> is okay. there is no primary source. Um, what I, I have learned is that in any given business opportunity, there are a variety of people who are going to benefit if that business succeeds. And these may be uh, the customer who gets a product or service that solves their problem. It could be a supplier vendor to the business who's going to sell them more products or services if they go along. It may be the community where the business is established because they hired 20 new workers who are paying taxes to pay for uh, everybody around them. It could be the economic development group because they want new jobs in their community and this is helping them fulfill their mission. Uh, it, it could be any number of people because uh, this is an environmental product that's going to save the planet. And I'm a person who believes strongly in saving the planet. So it becomes a cause. Uh, it could be a personal issue. It's a medicine that's going to save the life of someone down the road. Or in my mind, uh, I'm open to any drug that will stop dementia when I get older. Uh, these, uh, so everybody has their own agenda. Even though we spend money the same, every investor has their own personal decision they're going to make on why they invest. And so what I do is I do a mapping of all the people who are going to succeed uh, if this company succeeds. They're going to benefit from that. I call them stakeholders. And then I try to figure out who needs this company to succeed the most who has the driving urge to throw money at this company. And another way of framing it is they have their own goals and their own milestones. And the existence of this business is going to help them achieve their own personal goals, their own business goals. And, and so giving this company money is just like hiring a plumber to fix your sink. Oh, I need a plumber. The sink's overflowing. Nobody's asking the investment question about why I'm giving them money because my need is, is apparent. So uh, I look at everybody out there. I try to figure who needs the, uh, this company to succeed the most, who has money or non-money. doesn't have to be money. So we also get into non-monetary contributions. And, and usually you'll see somebody surface out of that analysis. You'll have somebody who stands out as, oh, I need that. All we need to do is make them aware that this company exists and it's a natural fit. As I was saying, if you review all the people who may benefit from the success of a particular business or opportunity, usually one or two will stand out where you have an alignment of mission. One is actually helping them fulfill their goal or mission. They have the resources that are needed and they understand the problem. So we don't have to go through education. We don't have to go through credibility building. Uh, you're ne necessary to what they're trying to achieve. It's a totally different thing. I'm not trying to pitch for money. I'm basically taking an order for my company to succeed by accepting that money. And it changes the entire dynamic of the conversation, the length and duration, the probability of success uh, across the board and, and raises the probability of getting the money 
faster, quicker, cheaper immensely. How common is this approach to financing a business? Because when I think about investment, I think venture capital firms, I think angel investment, and that's pretty much the whole list I have in my head. But this seems like a very compelling way to approach the problem of getting startup capital or or whatever you'd call it. So is this something you've pioneered? Is this a standard approach that is just not the kind of thing that makes it on the shark tank because it's not as sexy? I mean, how does yeah, this fit into the landscape? Contract, yeah. When you sign a contract with a, a show like Shark Tank in the, in the fine print, it says you agree to be publicly humiliated or embarrassed or otherwise, <laughs> right. because they're reminding you this is an entertainment event. This is not a funding event. Sure. Um, and and so uh, applying the same model, which I will say is uh, a lot of people will understand what I'm talking about. A lot of them may do it without necessarily having worked hard to try to, to get the languaging down. But apply the same model to a bank, an angel, and a VC. A bank has money that it needs to put to work, but it's been regulated to tell you that they cannot accept any risk. So if you're trying to do anything that involves an element of risk, they're automatically off the table. Plus, they don't they can succeed even if you fail. So if they pay back the entire loan by collecting on your collateral and the business still fails, they're not in alignment with the success of the business. Right. You go to an angel, and a lot of the angels stepped out of the market during COVID because they do not have to make an investment. They're not required to do that. Uh, they're doing it for their own personal benefit or gratification or whatever. And, and so they all sat on the sidelines, as we call it, while they're waiting for the market to stabilize. They do not have an interest in the business unless they invest. Up to the point of investment, they, they are not a beneficiary of the business, so they're not there. Now, if you get into managed money, uh, like a private equity fund or venture fund or, or some of those, they are being paid to put that money to work for their customers. So there is lots of money out there now looking but it tends to be conservative and higher dollar. You're talking $5 million minimum or maybe a 25 or even $50 million minimum investment, but they have to move, move that money forward because otherwise they're not gonna get paid. So you're starting to see a little bit of alignment between those who need to put the money to work and those who need some money, uh, but it's a, a relatively narrow overlap between those two areas. But banks and VCs uh, technically uh, they're not benefiting or don't have to benefit. So they're, they're sitting idle for the most part. So it sounds like the short version of your answer is that is yes, this is kind of unique. The short answer is that uh, this is not commonly done. Most people get over-focused on banks and angels and VCs, and they are commonly turned down. Uh, the uh, one statistic that was put out by the Kauffman Foundation is only one in 2,500 people get funded by a venture capitalist, uh, where a bank may uh, fund five of 100 people that they do, and angel groups, including uh, the local uh, Rockies Venture Clubs fund, they, they're meeting the national average about two of 100. So uh, when you have a system that fails 95, 98, or 99.999% of the time to provide funding, that's not necessarily what you would call a system that you would want to replicate. Well, is is it 
really a failure though. Like I'd be interested in your justification for calling it a failure because it could just be that 95% of the businesses aren't particularly good. The founders are not the right fit. They don't have a good business plan. So I would not expect any sort of funding system that's healthy to put money into a really large fraction of the businesses that come asking for it. I would expect it to be fairly small. So what are the reasons you have for indicting the existing systems as failures? And, and what would you imagine that a good system would fund? Like what percentage? Well, and, and you're correct um, that most businesses do not generate enough profits that they can afford to give up any significant percentage to any expensive money. So if you're, you're talking about a business that's generating 20% profits per year, and the investor wants a 20% rate of return in a high-risk venture, which I don't disagree with, then there's no money left over for the principals who started the business. Right. And most businesses just do not have that kind of profit margin to work with. Right. So they're gonna, they should be disqualified automatically. My problem is the amount of time and energy they are out pursuing money from sources that are gonna turn them down. That's where I see the, the waste occurring. So it's not an indictment of the sources of money, but the amount of time and energy that's wasted pursuing something that is almost futile. Um, and uh, so that's where you have to look for other types of capital. You have to look for things that have a lower cost of money, uh, maybe look for non-monetary forms of uh, investment uh, as an alternative to going after high-priced money. So I have several follow-ups given what you've just said. One thing I'm interested in hearing more about is the process you use for mapping out the interested parties in a given business. And I'm also curious about the regulate the regulatory hurdles that you come up against. So you, you mentioned that banks are kind of uh, banks are kind of hamstrung venture capitalists face these regulatory hurdles. So I'd like to know what it's like for you or these businesses that are raising capital through the channels you're describing. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, in my mind, there are a lot of regulations and uh, the smaller the business, uh, the more burdensome they become. So if, if I was a large business, these would be inconsequential items of cost. But if I'm out trying to raise 100,000 or $250,000, I might end up spending uh, $10,000, $20,000 on regulatory compliance, then give up uh, commissions if I'm using a broker or a crowdfunding platform of another 10 to 15%. And suddenly I've seen, uh, you know, 30, 40% of my money disappear before it ever reaches my door. And, and it's just, it's disproportionately costly to do small raises because of regulatory issues. Uh, but when I'm working with a business and we're talking about raising money, uh, and again, we're focused on those who are motivated to provide the funding, uh, we can cut through a lot of the cost and a lot of the time associated with this with a higher probability of success. And, and it's not a perfect cure. It doesn't, you know, a bad business should not get capital. Uh, and uh, because it can't return that capital to the investor and it's going to make bad use of scarce resources. So, uh, yeah, I, I get particularly frustrated when I see a business which is all glitz and no substance get a $2 million funding, which I know they'll burn through in two to three years or less. And that money disappears from the capital industry here in Colorado. Uh, right. that, that's, it's a waste. 
And then the, the first part of the question was the process. Like, how do you map out the people that have a vested interest in a new business succeeding? Yeah. So uh, when I start the process, I, I start first with what are the needs of the business? What's the use of proceeds chart that ordinarily would go into an offering memorandum? If you get money, you're going to spend it on people. Or you're going to spend it on equipment, buildings and facilities, because I like to look beyond the money to what I'm going to use the money on, because that may help me identify who might be a source of that particular type of capital and even avoid converting to cash and back from cash to whatever it is I was going to buy. Then with that in hand, I start looking at who may benefit. And I look in the supply chain. I, I first start with all my suppliers and vendors because it's easy to explain to them why I need the money because they're trying to sell to me and they have an incentive that is very obvious. Uh, uh, one of the vendors I'm working with this week agreed to give me a 90 uh, day um, time frame to pay off a purchase. That's a form of credit that I got from a vendor so I don't have to go raise money up front to buy that particular equipment. So it's easy to talk to them. They understand why they're there. Then I go downstream uh, to my distributors, retailers, and customers, which is where crowdfunding can enter into this and has become a, a continually growing source of capital where the end customer can invest in the business that they're buying their products from. And, um, and in that line, I have a number of people right there. I then look at my circle of my management team, uh, my board of advisors, my workers, employees, and so forth. That gives me a, yet another group. And then from there, I, I start looking for social causes. Uh, automatically, I look to all the economic development agencies who want new jobs, better paying jobs in the community. Uh, and that gives me a broader list. And by, by this time, I, I'm getting a pretty good feel for who all's out there why they care, who cares most. And, and then we wanna prioritize that list. So if I can talk to one person and get whatever I need in capital, I'm done, I'm happy. I, I don't get extra gold stars for talking to all the sources of capital. <laughs> so right. I, I wanna keep it short. Yeah, so uh, what, what sources of capital are available today that didn't exist 10 years ago? Uh, the only primary source uh, that's available today uh, is crowdfunding. And uh, what happened uh, way back when, uh, now going back to the last recession, <laughs> was uh, in 2008, they passed a law uh, at the federal level to authorize crowdfunding. And it took them four years before that law became reality because the SEC took undue length of time to come up with the regulations for implementing it. What that made a difference was prior to that time, the whole world was divided into the wealthy and the non-wealthy. And the definition of wealthy was limited to the top 3% of income earners and the other 97% were all the unwealthy. And you had to jump through extra hoops or were barred entirely from selling to the non-wealthy as they defined it. And so most deals went to angel investors who met the accredited investor status. When they passed the crowdfunding laws at the federal level and most of the states followed, that opened up all investment to all people everywhere. And, and that's been a huge difference from a technical standpoint, but practically we still haven't fixed it so that it's simple and easy to invest in a small company is to buy some stock on Wall Street. Um, so that's a major change. Other than that, 
the only thing that's really changed are there have been a, a number of different tax incentives or other things like the opportunity zones uh, that have come along that have tried to redirect investor money into communities that are distressed and could use some economic help. And, and so it isn't technically new money, but the money's being pointed in a different direction. And, and you'll see every year uh, certain new tax incentives or tax credits or other types of programs come forward. That's a, it's a continuing changing environment that you have to monitor all the time. And occasionally you'll see some uh, federal and state programs that will hand out grants like during COVID now, you can get like a $15,000 grant up in some cases, two to five, 15,000 uh, to put in new COVID equipment or outdoor uh, heating things for dining on the street, which um, are, are tests with a disinfection technology, made me afraid to go outside anymore because the air outside was so far more polluted than the indoor air that uh, it, it was a little spooky. Um, but uh, there, there are grants like that coming forward on COVID uh, and the new PPP program has been amended so you can spend more money on all the costs you're incurring to become COVID safety compliant that you couldn't do before. So it, there's new stuff coming out. The, 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 the current stimulus packages, including going all the way back to the first ones and the new ones being proposed, are gonna pump more money into the economy um, than we've ever seen uh, from any government action at any time in history. Yep. Uh, at the same time, those programs are not hitting everybody. Uh, not everybody's going to be eligible. There's still going to be winners or losers. Uh, so it, it isn't a guaranteed, uh, here's, you know, here's my rescue raft that's going to pick me up out of the ocean and bring me back to the boat. Uh, we're still going to see people floating in the water forever. Uh, for which there's no life preserver and there's no boat to go rescue them. Yeah, since you brought up the opportunity zones, can you expand on what the opportunity zones are and how they got created and and uh, how they benefit a, a startup business? Sure. Uh, the uh, the tax act that was passed under the Trump administration back in twenty the end of twenty seventeen. Uh, created a brand new program that was bipartisan supported. Uh, and it basically said that we're going to take 25% of the census tracts, uh, of the lowest income census tracts in every state across the United States. And the states get to pick which one of those actually were designated as opportunity zones and those were certified by the IRS. If they're designated as an opportunity zone, then uh, somebody who has realized a capital gain from sale of an asset is encouraged and incentivized to take that money and invest it in those geographic areas in, in pretty much any kind of business other than a few accepted businesses. If they do that, they get a number of benefits. They get to defer paying taxes on those gains. If they leave the money in long enough, part of those capital gains or the taxes will be reduced. And then if they make new money on that new investment and they leave it in there for 10 years, all those gains are tax-free. So it's a significant, substantial incentive for someone who might have realized money from sale of land or stock to they would ordinarily might have put it into another stock or into a mutual fund or into an urban area. And now this money, they can put it into somewhere else 
And over 10 years, all that potential profit becomes tax-free. That's that's a major incentive for them to rethink where they're putting their money and why they're putting their money. So we've seen uh, a large number of projects uh, springing up in communities across Colorado uh, where we have a large number of opportunity zones from the center of Denver down by uh, wherever the Broncos play football. I forgot the name of the new stadium. all the way across the state to, to the western edge uh, on Utah and all you know from north to south borders. We're seeing community projects which benefit more than a singular business, but a lot of businesses in the community. And this money is doing a lot of good. Uh, so I, I know there's been some complaints that occasionally a rich person is getting richer by investing into this type of a project but I really don't care about that aspect of it as much as I do the fact that this community, which previously was invisible and not on the radar, now is being seriously considered for an investment input from somebody from somewhere else. Yeah, and I, I don't know why that would be so problematic morally. A, a wealthy person is putting money into businesses in an area so that everyone kind of makes money there. And then they also make money as a result of the capital gains on that. It seems like people who com- who are complaining about this dynamic are focusing over much on on the fact that this one person is making some return when they should be noticing that that's you know an injection of lifeblood into the economy of that area. Well, I, there are a couple, if you want to call them isolated incidents or or less common incidents, where you had a census tract that was still designated as low income when they did the census back in two thousand and ten. And uh, eight years had passed, uh, uh, so to speak, and uh, and now that is no longer a low-income area, or it's the next area that was going to be redeveloped anyway. So uh, it seemed like a slam dunk, and some people have made some really good money uh, in uh, some a few, very few of these different opportunity zones, and, and it makes it easy to point them out and say that 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 isn't what we were trying to do. Um, and uh, so, but at the same time, as you said, uh, I have to have capital gains to make this program work. Uh, people may have earned you know, a small amount of capital gains in their mutual fund, but uh, most people don't have any significant amount of capital gains. You're still gonna be looking to people who have investments and are, are making that kind of income in order to qualify for this program. What does a business have to do in order to be eligible for an opportunity zone investment? I mean, they have to be located geographically there. Is that right? Yes. The the business has to be uh, headquartered in an opportunity zone, a geographic area that's been designated. And then their business activity has to meet certain criteria. There's five different sets. It's complicated enough. I'm not even going to try to explain it here. But they basically, the spirit of the law is, They want you to spend money on people and buildings and equipment in the opportunity zone. Now the business can have customers all around the world, uh, but the money is being spent in the opportunity zone and you get that local economic development spinoff and cascade, or if they buy their groceries there, then it helps the grocery store. If they buy coffee, you know, all those good things happen. Couldn't we just make the whole world an opportunity zone by getting rid of some of the draconian <laughs> taxes and regulations? Um, it actually was proposed at the beginning of COVID to stretch opportunity zones from coast to coast. 
which in my mind uh, defeats the purpose of reorienting money uh, to the lesser places who have a greater need. It's also been suggested it may yet be considered by the Biden administration to not do 25% of the low income groups, but go to 100% of the low income areas. And there's a couple other changes that have been talked about, which are realistic and might be considered uh, by the new Congress, because it, it will require uh, a new law to amend the, the existing law. And, and there are a number of schedules about when you recognize the money and when you have to invest it into an opportunity zone business uh, and then into uh, a project. And they've been sliding these like every 30, 60 days on the deadlines. And um, for the last nine months, it's been impossible to tell exactly when you have to do anything because they keep changing uh, the deadline. And um, if you're trying to raise money, um, it creates a sense of urgency if you know that they have to invest by the end of the year. And then they just moved it to the end of March. And, and now I guess so I don't have to do anything or I've got time to look around for other opportunities. How is an opportunity zone different from a special economic zone? Um, there's a variety of different designations that are out there. There are enterprise zones and, and hub spots and, and different states and communities have different names for them. Usually uh, these other programs are tax credits, meaning that if a business will hire so many people or do some kind of a project, they can offset part of their income uh, against the tax credit. So it reduces uh, the tax liability to the business. The business can pass that through uh, to uh, their investors and they can split those out. So the investors get 100% of those. And, and it's similar to uh, historic building preservation or other types of tax credits, which are supposed to incentivize. So in those cases, uh, you do not have this special designation of a territory uh, necessarily, sometimes enterprise zones are statewide, so it, it almost becomes meaningless. They're, they're the zone state and the zone are equivalent, uh, where in this case, they're much more precise on what falls in and what falls out of a, a special treatment. Well, I, I happen to have a $100 bill in my pocket that's burning a hole in my pocket. Why would I'll I... Take it. Why, why would sorry, I... Would you, would you want I, for it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to know why I would want to invest that in a rugby team. Um, well, my... And, and, and here, here we go. My first question <laughs> is, Tom, did you play rugby at any time during your life? No. Okay, then I'm probably going to disqualify you automatically. <laughs> uh, this first raise that we're doing... It's going to be limited to 220 people who have all played rugby, and rugby is part of their life, their breath, their lifestyle. They're all rugby fanatics who want to see the sport of rugby grow. So uh, right now, uh, there's an estimated uh, 3.5 million rugby players in the world, and we want to move that to 65 million rugby players. And, and associated that with all the people who are going to watch and enjoy rugby as a sport. If you do not believe that growing rugby is going to get you up in the morning, you're not going to meet my uh, investor candidate profile uh, for this first round investment. Um, and, and a lot of the incentives that are surrounding this are non-monetary. Uh, you may not be excited about getting a rugby jersey and becoming a minority owner in a, in a professional rugby team 
or you may not care about getting a discount on your rugby kit because you don't want a rugby kit. So um, <laughs> in this very quick fashion, I'm not trying to raise money from people who are looking for a return on investment. I'm looking for people who treat rugby as a cause and who, are, who would be quite happy if they never got their money back just if they saw rugby grow as a sport. So, so 10 years from now, do you foresee a special district building a special rugby stadium in downtown Denver? Uh, there's already one in Glendale. And, uh, but uh, right now we are talking with the city of Inglewood uh, in hopes that uh, we may create a, a rugby field that is a multi-purpose. It's not limited to just the professionals, but is used to uh, provide uh, teams training from anything from very young youth to uh, scholastic sports in, in the community. Okay. And, and therefore, it, again, the idea is here not to make it a rich man's sport. It's not to be an elitist type of activity. It's intended to be a way of life uh, where you get up in the morning because of rugby and then you go to your job so you can come back to rugby. So I guess my last question is why rugby? Why, why not curling or like of all the sports that you wanted to spread across the land? Why did you choose rugby? The short answer is I did not choose that. I was engaged as an expert in raising capital to help frame the offering so it would have a higher probability of success. I see. Okay. Well, outstanding. This has been a great conversation. We've really learned a lot. Thanks so much for stopping by, Carl. No, I appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. And um, happy uh, to share more information anytime. And uh, um, give me six months, I'll have at least another new project to talk about. Yeah. No, okay. No <laughs> this is great. All right. Thanks, Carl. Much appreciated. Okay. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.